Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Rory Sutherland. He's one of the world's leading consumer behavior experts, the vice chairman of Ogilvy Advertising, and an author. Humans are an odd animal. Our behavior sometimes makes very little sense, but when we exchange our money for products, it can make even less sense. Thankfully, Rory has spent decades studying some of the most fascinating parts of consumer psychology, and today he gives us some insights. Expect to learn why having a Japanese toilet might change your life, why I've become addicted to first-class airline cabin reviews on YouTube, how ChatGPT will impact the marketing world, how to increase your luck in life, whether vaping should be banned, why VR hasn't taken off, if I'm buying a McDonald's greaseproof gaming chair, and much more. This man is a force of nature. If you are yet to listen to Rory, this will be his fourth time on the show, I think, and he literally gets better every single time. He is everything that is fantastic about Britain, and he makes me incredibly proud to be from that country. You're, you're going to adore this one. It's so many hilarious, funny, uh, and novel insights around the way that humans behave and our interaction with the market. Enjoy. Also, don't forget that if you are listening, you might not be subscribed, and that means you're going to miss episodes when they go up. So please press the subscribe button. It does support the show. It helps me get bigger and better guests, and it makes me very happy. I thank you. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is the best personal fitness tracker that I have ever found. It monitors your body 24-7 via non-invasive wearable and provides you with feedback on your lifestyle, sleep, and training. It has a proven ability to drive positive behavioral change through gentle nudges in the Whoop mobile app, urging you to sleep more or take on more strain. Whoop members dramatically improve their habits and therefore their health. Everything that you do, from the walks that you're taking to your training sessions, your sleep, your active recovery, literally everything that you do gets tracked from one wrist strap and it's all spit out in an app in very easy to understand and easy to use data. Also, you can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it after 29 days, they'll give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by... BetterHelp. We all need help at some point in our lives, whether it's because of stress at home or work or loneliness. It can be invaluable to know that there's someone professionally trained who can help us get through whatever we're facing. Over 2 million people have taken charge of their mental health with BetterHelp's online service. It removes all of the hassle and awkwardness that can be involved in finding a therapist and gives you some essential simplified steps instead. There are a broad range of experts available categorized by their speciality or combination of specialities like addiction, social anxiety, or relationships. You can start communicating in under 48 hours and the service is available worldwide. You get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you don't even have to leave the house. It is a quicker, cheaper, and more convenient way to start doing therapy. So if this is something that you've been thinking about for a while, I would highly recommend checking out BetterHelp. Also, you can get a 10% discount on your first month, and there is a free quiz that can take you through all of the different options that they've got. So head to betterhelp.com slash modernwisdom. That's betterhelp.com slash modernwisdom. 
And in final news, this episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. You are not eating enough fruit and vegetables in your diet, and you know it, and this is going to help. They also have a special discount available until the end of February, which is 10 free travel packs with your first purchase. Also, that means that you're going to get 40 days of coverage from your first month subscription, which is pretty good. They are a all-in-one superfood powder which contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, pre- and probiotic green superfood blend, and more. They're NSF certified for sports in the US, meaning that even Olympians can use it, and they have updated the recipe 53 times over the last decade as new research has come in. It's lifestyle-friendly whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, dairy-free or gluten-free, and it contains less than one gram of sugar. It is the most complete drink that you're going to get, and it takes one scoop once per day. Also, you can get a year's free supply of vitamin D and those 10 free travel packs exclusively if you go to athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom, and there's a 90-day money-back guarantee there as well. That's athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom. But now... Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rory Sutherland. I'm drinking Liquid Death. Are you familiar with this? The can, yes, the can's water brand? Yes, it's beastly water. Is it sparkling water or, or still? I've never had it. This is sparkling. So the black can's sparkling and the white can is still. Ah. I watched a very interesting advertisement uh, come analysis uh, that the founder put across where he explained the branding strategy behind Liquid Death, calling something literally the opposite of what it is, having a very sort of unique brand position. It's got this skull on it there. Yes. Um, what's your thoughts on Liquid Death? Uh, what's interesting about it is that, um, uh, funnily enough, A, uh, something rather weird, is I pretty much dislike drinking water um, from a tap or any other shape or form. Weirdly, I quite like drinking water from a can, and I have no idea why that is. So I've started buying drinking far more water than I did before. Now you can get it in canned form rather than bottle form. Actually, it's not quite true. I'm pretty happy drinking it from glass, but I don't like drinking water from plastic bottles. Do you know what my favorite brand of sparkling water is? Have you had Topo Chico before? No, you'll have to. Okay, you'll have to enlighten me on that. So it's Mexican sparkling water, and there is a, a carbonation grade, and I think uh, a San Pellegrino is maybe at a ninety-ish on this mm. particular spectrum and topo chico's a 140 so this thing just feel it's like a fizzy battery it, it just it's takes insane, your face it's off it's insanely carbonated yeah funnily enough the germans have various sort of often fairly cheap sprudel vases uh, which are again insanely carbonated which i've always really liked um and um uh, it, it, it's uh, it, it's generally quite interesting there's a very good water which funnily enough uh, you only seem to get now at um, Crown Plaza Hotels, which is a Welsh water, uh, which I like very much as well, which I think is called, it's called something like Cambrian, but it, it isn't called that. Um, but I think the idea, I mean, effectively, uh, the branding will af- totally affect the experience because, um, uh, you know, uh, packaging affects taste. 
is it, is it conspicuous consumption do you think for a, for a, an uh, age uh, where yeah. uh, alcohol is less cool than it might be uh, might have used to be yeah i mean i like i like the sheer perversity of saying call something the opposite of of uh, what it really is um, th- there was obviously a brand called death cigarettes back in the day in the early 90s which was from the ethical tobacco company and they said we're going to sell cigarettes we're just not going to lie about them and that was similar uh, that that had a kind of black packaging and a skull on it um and um uh, no i mean what what is undoubtedly true is you can um i mean you know it, i mean all alcoholic drinks brands know this you know that you're drinking imagery as much as you're drinking a drink and um uh you know the associations are as powerful as the reality essentially and I haven't tried liquid death. I'll be intrigued to know what, what effect it has on me. Good quality. Uh, What's this? This is a 500 mil as well, which is a nice sized can. I'll tell you what else yeah. I've been obsessed with recently. Have you watched first class airplane cabin reviews on YouTube? Yeah, I've watched quite a few of those. Why uh, are they so compelling? What is it about them? I don't know. Um, it's um, uh, It's kind of interesting because... In a way, when you think about it, an experience in an airline's first class is, other than the food, it's not all that fantastic, is it? Because you're still confined to a very small space. You have to share a toilet, okay? You know, uh, you've got one seat to sit in. You can't actually, you know, I mean, some of the more elaborate cabins now, you have your own desk and a swivel chair and goodness knows what else, admittedly. Um but it is surprisingly and weirdly interesting. I quite like the idea they have an Emirates, which is if you have a cabin in the middle, you have these windows, which appear to be the windows of a plane, but are in fact a video reproduction of what you would see if you were looking out of a window. No way. I haven't well, I mean, seen that, that yet. That, that has impl- interesting implications for um, uh, you know, airline design ultimately, because it's an interesting question. You know, it must be presumably cheaper and safer to build aircraft without windows, but you have to have windows to stop passengers going nuts. I did see once the most extraordinary thing, which was a, uh, it was obviously a design project rather than a, a serious proposal, but it was effectively an airliner where, uh, you know, more or less half the inside of the fuselage was video screens. Uh, with a you know effectively showing a picture of the exterior, so you almost felt you were travelling in a transparent plane. Wow! Which would be almost magically weird, I suspect. That's cool. That would make for a, so I. Uh, I mean, it does. It does. One of the interesting things actually is that 4K for quite a lot of for quite a lot of functions, 4K TV isn't that much better than HD. Um, HD, I think most people can tell the difference between HD and standard definition. Certainly if you're in the United States, where the standard definition picture, which had fewer lines than the European picture, was particularly crap, actually. I mean, you know, American standard definition television um, was rubbish even compared to European standard definition TV. And HD is, you know, markedly better and clearer, particularly when you're displaying something like text or data or anything of that kind. And 4K is quite interesting because it doesn't really make much difference if you're watching, let's say, soccer or football. Because when you've got a lot of movement going on, A, I think there's a lot of blurring anyway, but actually your brain's doing most of the work. Your brain's effectively assembling the um, the image 
from what information it has when things are moving very fast. So if you notice, whenever you go into a TV store and they have 4K or in extreme cases, 8K screens on display, it'll always show like a static close-up picture of an ant next to a blob of water Correct. or a flower. It's a jellyfish it slowly moving in slow Very, mode. very slowly moving or a night sky over a, mm. you know, Imaginary do, you remember, do you remember when Joe Rogan first moved to Austin and he went into a studio that was this big red thing? It kind of looked like the inside of a fleshlight. And the first few episodes that he released in this new studio, everybody was unhappy about it. They couldn't tell what was wrong, but they said, this is awful. We, it, it looks terrible and I can't work out why. It's because he was filming it in 60 frames per second. They'd moved there and they'd put it in 60 FPS instead of, I think, 25. And this I learned this because this um, YouTube channel did a great breakdown of what was wrong with it. And then they fixed it and switched it back to 25 or 30, perhaps. And the issue is that your eyes naturally see blur. So if you hold your hand up in front of your face and you wiggle it left and right, you actually do see this blur. You don't see every single frame of where your hand is. No. And what that means is that 60 FPS is displaying a type of video that your eyes are not used to seeing in the real world, which is what makes it feel so artificial. Uh, interesting. Interesting. So um, I wonder why, yeah, so nearly all TV is broadcast at 25, is it? 25, yeah, 24. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Yeah, that, that's that's fascinating. Obviously, you have, you know, things like the, the Mac, uh, the Apple Retina screen, where there's no point in making a screen that's... Uh, uh, any finer since we wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Um, what is interesting about 4K is that it does get close enough if you if you've got a reasonably slow moving image. And there is that interesting, you know, hypothetical debate, um, uh, which is, you know, ultimately either through virtual reality or just through really good streams. Is there a perfectly acceptable form of virtual tourism? Now, I must admit, I'm glad you're a YouTube fanatic. Uh, the thing I always recommend people do is subscribe to YouTube Premium. Oh, Rory, almost you are before among, you subscribe to, yeah, you are among friends here. I'm also. I, I, we must be in a tiny minority of people because I've got a friend at YouTube, and I keep asking how many people actually subscribe to Premium, and it's a pretty vanishingly small number. I did it. I think more or less by accident, and it was practically the best thing that ever happened to me in life. And we're reaching a point, I think, where the volume of content on YouTube has become so vast that it's only well, maybe it maybe it's already happened, but it's only a smidgen away from becoming effectively Wikipedia with video. Correct. In other words, it becomes so comprehensive. Uh, this extraordinary kind of um, assemblage of virtually every conceivable, um, uh, you know, uh, subject treated to on video that you'll reach a point where effectively there'll be a film on everything. Yep. Um, and and I, the two things I really recommend with YouTube, as I said, first of all, um, watch it on your telly, you know, because you know, we all have this very early memory of YouTube where it was all, you know, handheld, slightly pixelated, all a bit crap. And you, there was no point in watching it on TV because it would have, you know, effectively pixelated. And actually, you know, the vast majority of the content actually is, uh, if not professionally produced, it's, you know, sort of broadcast quality. 
And I do spend occasionally, one of the things I really love is really, really slow TV. So you get these 4K walking tours of Cebu in the Philippines, for example. You know, that was one of them. And it's just someone with a 4K camera wandering around Cebu for an hour and a half. And it's surprisingly worthwhile, in fact. Um, uh, you know, that obviously, um, uh, there's one, one of my favorite ones is Virtual Rail Fan, which is basically uh, an American YouTube channel, often live webcams for train spotters. And when I'm working at home, I leave this on in the background. And effectively, you just get a tiny amount of back. If it's at a station, yes. you'll get a tiny amount of background noise or cars driving past. And then you get on with your work. And then about every half hour, a train goes past. and You kind of take a break to to stare at it for the seven minutes it takes to, to pass the screen. There's a uh, there's a guy that does city tours walking at night mm. and uh, the, the a lot of the time in rain. And there's something about that which is oddly very, very therapeutic. I saw an article that I wanted to bring up, actually. 50% um, of Americans watch content with subtitles most of the time. 55% say it is harder to hear dialogue in shows and movies than it used to be. Nearly three in four respondents claimed muddled audio from their content. 61% use them on accents are difficult to understand. 29% prefer to watch their content at home quietly, leaving subtitles on so as not to disturb their roommates or family. And 27% of Americans rely on subtitles to keep them focused on what they are watching while juggling the distractions of multiple screens, children, pets, work, the news, and more. So interestingly, if you go back to the 1970s, um, uh, not that they broadcast many of them, but Americans would impose subtitles on Australian content in particular, which seems, you know, I think it's, if I've got this right, Prisoners, Prisoner Cell Block H was the first Australian sort of soap, if you can call it that, uh, to be broadcast in the US without subtitles. Well, there's a uh, you'll you'll always see this even in the UK, especially for us because we have such a, a panoply of different accents that you could get stuck into. What I always find hilarious is when they hard code subs onto certain people, perhaps in a, a documentary or whatever. The policeman, there's no subtitles, but the criminal with a very strong Scouse accent, yeah. he's he's been forced to have this because they've just made a decision. They're like, look, no one is going to be able... The, the, the cohort of people that can understand this man is like five, so we're just going to put them on the screen for everybody. So funnily enough, it's another of my friends who also has YouTube Premium who is one of the first to point out that actually subtitles um, have... Uh, uh, are generally preferable in all kinds of ways. And is it, and of course, Brits got used to it probably with Scandi drama, unless you were into French art house or something. It was probably Scandi drama that really got Brits into subtitle watching. It's, uh, it does force you to pay attention. It stops you dozing off because you have to look at the screen to know what's going on. Um, I find the diction and enunciation of a lot of modern actors pretty poor. You know, I mean, you, you, one thing you can say, say what you like about Cary Grant, but he didn't exactly mumble. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, it was okay. It was a bizarre hybrid of a Bristolian English and American accent. You know, we can probably all accept that. By the way, the one uh, one thing that Brits are very talented at as linguists, and it's through necessity, is being able to understand English spoken in a very wide range of accents. So we're always said to be very bad at languages. Well, yes and no. I mean, one thing we're pretty good at is being, being able to understand more or less anybody speaking English. 
And it's uh, partly because of our, our own regional accents give us practice. Yeah. The one you'll love if you're from the Northeast is that the elder Stevenson, inventor of the steam locomotive, had such a strong Geordie accent that when he presented the locomotive in London, he was accompanied by an interpreter. No so way. He actually had, yeah. Um, <laughs> what was it? I'm just trying to remember. There was James and there was the elder one, the father. I mean, I, I, think, I think the father sent you know, the son to a load of fancy schools. Was presumably he'd made enough money by then. But the elder Stevenson would apparently go to London for demonstrations and go, right, yeah, I agree. Boy, you're the bastard. And fucking hell, you know. And, and they go, what Mr. Stevenson wants to say is that the addition of a boiler to the locomotive will facilitate the air, right? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I always think that it's just utterly fantastic. Wow. It's very interesting, actually, when you think about it, that most... I was making a joke suggestion for the electric car the other day, which is to say that the act- actually the internal combustion engine is unnatural and evil because it's the only form of motive power not invented in the UK. Ah, uh, yes. And so what... both diesel and the petrol engine are basically continental inventions. Pretty much everything else, electric motor, probably Faraday, Stirling engine, steam engine, watt, etc., and what's quite interesting is actually that um, and, and so many of these things were kind of invented. I mean, Watt being one obvious case, Faraday himself to a degree, although he was he became an assistant to Humphrey Davy. But they're actually uneducated people, which is kind of interesting. Um, you know, they were tinkerers and fiddlers in, you know, and they had access to the right tinkering equipment. Have you read um, Winston Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare? I've heard of it, but tell me more. This is, if, if I could give you a single book that I think is the most Rory book that I've read over the last 12 months, this would be it. So um, in the build-up to the beginning of World War II, a bunch of bigwigs in the UK government realized that war seems to be afoot, and they realized that we are woefully unprepared to be able to fight a war with this level of brutality. And the reason that he calls it ungentlemanly warfare is that there was a, a point where... Uh, guerrilla warfare, uh, sabotage of key bridges and and stuff was seen as being such an uncouth military strategy that a British military general was actually quoted as saying, if this is what it takes to win the war, I'm prepared to lose. He basically saw that he had this sort of stiff upper lip type of discipline with regards to the way that it's Brits... It's absolutely okay to fight combatants, but to crap people's general quality... Or- it was sort of crop burning and Correct. all that other stuff. It would be too of, much. So what they did, much. the reason that the tinkerer thing got me onto this was that he, they try and create this web of miscreants, basically. So this um, garage inventor who'd created a three stories high caravan that was only able to go across certain roads because of the bridge clearance he needed. He made the world's first limpet mine. So the limpet mine that was deposited into a sea and would then attach with a a magnet and would then blow up uh, U-boats and stuff. And the way that they did it was so cottage industry. This is why you love it. So, for instance, they needed to find a primer that would dissolve at the exact right rate. And the solution that they came up to, having gone through everything, was aniseed seed balls. So the aniseed sweets that you would have. And the reason they needed that, they needed something to separate out the two electrical contacts so it wouldn't fire too quickly, it wouldn't fire too slowly. And they tried 
everything. They also tried... And the aniseed ball was perfect, was it? Because in salt water, it would be, what, sort of a, a number of minutes? Yep, 30, 30 minutes exactly, let's say, for this particular type. So, oh, And then they wrapped it, they wrapped the entire thing to make sure that this aniseed ball didn't start to dissolve too quickly in condoms. And I can't remember where it was that they were doing this. It was maybe in, let's say it was in, like, Sussex or something like that, uh, some little village in Sussex. And the... A guy that wrote the book says it's unclear whether or not there was an increase in the number of children born nine months later after this. The town of Sussex noticed that every single co- condom was condom being bought out. Fetched. Yeah, because they were trying to do it subversively. They needed to go into little village stores and buy. But yeah, that's that's fantastic. And the the, the tinkering thing makes a lot of sense as well. But the gentleman warfare thing is interesting because uh, one of my sort of favourite characters, I think I'm fairly sure it was Admiral Coburn uh, who almost started the War of 1812 in the United States. And uh, he was uh, part of the group which, um, along with uh, uh, you know, a bunch of Canadians as well, who burned the White House down, which is why it's the White House, to cover the smoke damage and so on. Oh, it wasn't uh, the White for, House before? Uh, I, I've got a vague idea that it was painted white thereafter um, because of smoke damage, but I'll have to double-check on this. But he was certainly the guy who burnt the burnt the Senate house, the Senate and the Capitol down um, in in this War of eighteen twelve, and um, he was a kind of <laughs> libertarian military man who was absolutely insistent that you could you could damage national property because it was uh, you know the property of the seditious Yankee state, but you must not damage private property. And he only made one exception. There was a newspaper that was very rude about him, and I think he just broke into the newspaper and destroyed all their letter K's so they couldn't write about him. That was the other case. But his troops were under strict instructions, you know, town halls, that's fine. You can burn those down. But if it's private property, you don't touch it, Mm. which is kind of quite interesting. Why do you Um, think, you you, you mentioned earlier on about VR. Why do you think that VR's not necessarily taken off mainstream adoption the way that some people might have predicted? Well, there's also a strange one, which is why we have, why we don't, um, use computers wearing goggles as well. I mean, just re- you know, regardless of any 3D-ness, even in 2D, you could presumably have a fantastic and enormous screen as an interface. You know, an interface which possibly had, you know, but I mean, okay, we need to see the keyboard, I guess. Would touch typists be better off? But but it always strikes me as strange that just watching a film with using goggles, which, of course, you can do on Oculus device or meta devices now um uh, isn't more popular because it's a very cheap way of getting a huge screen in a way um and okay some of it seems to be sort of slight feelings of vertigo or sickness and i'm not sure they've actually tracked that there are certainly a large number of cases where i wouldn't use it so i'd probably feel pretty comfortable using vr goggles on a plane but not on a train because on a train, I'd be convinced that either someone was going to nick my briefcase or that I might be stabbed from behind, you know, that you'd actually just, you know, if you think, if you think about it, I mean, the, the whole thing's very interesting on the headphones question. Because um, I bought before Christmas as a pure experiment, these bone conducting headphones, uh, which you don't wear over your ear. At all. I, I can't wear in-ear headphones. I, I genuinely, whether it's the shape of my ears, just age, habit, it just strikes me as completely bizarre, you know. Uh, and I've, I've I've struggled with in-ear headphones, and I've bought them, and I've tried different sizes of 
the sort of butt plug device and so on. I, you know, but I can't make them work. And also, on a plane, for example, I'm terrified they'll just fall out, get trapped in the seat mechanism, and you know, the whole thing will be a disaster. And so, I'm always a big fan of over-the-air headphones and noise-canceling headphones, um, which work for me very well, as you can see. Um, but these bone conducting things are interesting because they don't actually cover your ears at all. And so your ability to hear things in the outer world is, well, it, it, it's not completely unimpeded because obviously you have a lot of noise coming from something else. But they were, they're were they intended for joggers, but actually they're also brilliant for old people with hearing loss because the sound goes straight to your, effectively straight into your cheekbones. And so if your ears have become generally damaged through, gen, you know, what you might call the subtle, what is it, the anvil and the stirrup and so forth. If they've become a bit clogged up and less flexible, it bypasses that part of your ear which has been damaged and kind of goes straight into sensation. Now, my experience with bone conducting headphones, um, and I think which magazine's review kind of bears this out, is that for music, it's a bit shit still. I mean, I have to say, it's not brilliant. The fidelity's just not there? It's the I suppose the sort of warmth, the the the, the timbre. It's it, it's just not there. It, it it it's missing something. I mean, you know, you can hear hear all the lyrics, you can enjoy it to an extent, but it it, it doesn't really do it. But for spoken content, particularly podcasts, I'd say it's absolutely brilliant. You know, mm. I, I find it um, uh, because one of the things is a you can walk around wearing these things for ages because they just hook over your ears. Okay, and then there's a little thing which makes very mild pressure against your cheek. So, um, and for answering phone calls, having a phone call, you can forget you're wearing these things. Now, that's not true of over-the-ear headphones where your ears will overheat, and you also have that mild sense of disorientation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I do see young people walking around with um, noise-cancelling headphones, or as I call them, to not the fury of my wife-cancelling headphones. Um, <laughs> Fury, but but I you know I see people walking around. I couldn't do it myself, I think, because I'd I'd feel some sort of loss of almost loss of sort of balance. In other words, they're, they're too immersive yep. in that sense. So these bone conducting things are definitely part of the solution. You know, if you wanted to just wander around London listening to a podcast without getting hit by a van. Um, I have to say they're a pretty good idea. And actually, what's a bit tragic is, of course, because of that whole thing of traffic and awareness. They're being marketed to young joggers when I would say that 50% of the market is actually people over 50. Yeah, yeah. You know, whose hearing just isn't quite so good. Am I making this up? Or about 20 years ago, was there a brand of lollipop that was released for kids that came attached to something that looked a lot like the base of a electric toothbrush and it would play a song while you sucked on the lollipop by going through the lollipop in terms of vibration? I swear that I'm not making this up in my mind. If it's not the case, though, imagine this. Let's say that you need to get kids to brush their teeth and they need to use an electric toothbrush. There must be a way that you could induct a song as opposed to just the vibrations of the actual toothbrush through the mouth of the child so that they would actually enjoy the one minute and 20 seconds or however long a infant needs to brush its teeth I, I think it's two two minutes, I think, might be the, the optimal time for an electric toothbrush. Yes, At least a two-minute-long song, and maybe six. they could, you know, dance around while they're listening to it. I don't know. That seems like a, a potentially cool solution if you could somehow blend both of these technologies together. Because they, they must be very closely linked, because when you think about it, 
when you are cleaning your teeth, particularly with an electric toothbrush, it is impossible to hear anything on the radio, anything Correct. that's being said Correct. to you. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. so in other words, you know, the vibration must be effectively drowning out all use of your ears. Yes. I mean, I, I love I love the Japanese road organ, which you probably know of, which is a series of kind of um, uh, uh, corrugated strips on the road. Oh, and the idea yes. is that if you exactly if you drive at the legal speed, it plays a nice tune. And if you drive too quickly, presumably uh, it's it's, a, it's absolutely it's, awful. So, so if you imagine lots of uh, those of you who know the southwestern quadrant of the M twenty three M twenty five, which is this most appalling stretch of ribbed concrete still, which was which was never tarmacked. And where you have to drive along, funnily enough, that actually has a rather negative, rather negative effect because the vibration is less unpleasant the faster you go. So this is like <laughs> to really welly it just to make that uh, just to make that stretch of the M25 tolerable. It's a bit around Cobham, yeah. Uh, uh, but the Japanese one is quite sensible because it's it's various little different vibrations which plays a cutie little tune in terms of your tire noise. Provide and uh, the tune. Only sounds any, only good if you're travelling at the legal speed. Have you heard about this new jet that's going to come and basically replace what Concorde would have been? So a transatlantic supersonic jet that's going to get people across from New York to London in no time at all. It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's still. By the way, there are still weird problems that have always struck me with supersonic travel. Um, one of which is that. Unless you can actually make it work across land and on a wide variety of routes, um, it isn't that big a time saving to any one given individual. You know, unless you, you know, unless you tr- cross the Atlantic, you know, practically weekly. Um, so unless you can actually create a network of supersonic jets rather than just one route. But the other thing that always strikes me as fundamentally flawed with the idea is the eastbound leg because everybody goes concord absolutely marvelous you used to wake up in new york before you'd taken off in london which was true you could leave london in, at, at 10 o'clock and you'd basically arrive in new york at something like eight forty-five in time for breakfast yeah they, phil, uh, phil collins uh, once played live aid in the uk and then flew mm. to the us and played the same time slot i think you're right i think i think that's right yeah that, that would have been yeah and the interesting thing there, though, is that eastbound, it really doesn't work because the best way to – there are only – I think there are only about three or four day flights between New York and London. The airlines don't like them because you have a plane sitting on the tarmac overnight not making any money. Okay, so the airlines really don't like day flights. I think they just do it out of necessity with what you might call the last flight of the day to land. Um and um, the interesting problem is that if you think about it, I think Concorde's return flights, let me get this right. I got a vague idea. There was one which where you left at about nine in the morning and, and it landed at about five. And I might have the idea there was another that landed at, that went at 11 in the morning. Was there one that went at seven in the morning? There were two flights that used to come in. I always remember there was one around about the sort of five, five o'clock, five thirty-six. It would land in Heathrow, and you'd hear it coming over London. But that's a singularly useless return journey because a, you've got to have a totally pointless night in a hotel where you get up really early and have to get to JFK by I don't know seven something or other, right? Um, 
and um, uh, then then effectively you you'd lose a complete day while you're awake flying back. And uh, most people I would have thought for the return leg would have preferred to have left the evening before on a ten o'clock flight and woken up the following morning in London. Yeah, especially if you're not you'd... staying in London once you arrive there. If you're going on somewhere from London, you're going to have to probably get a hotel exactly, exactly in that. London. Yeah, yeah. So, the, so the, 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 you're absolutely right. So the um, uh, the uh, the um, what, what would you say? Uh, the, the onward flight. Okay, you know, you you might have missed the last flight to Milan or whatever it might have been by dint of that. So there are some. It always strikes me that everybody always bigged up the glories of Concord going east to west, which seemed to me fairly. I agree. It is, there's something rather wonderful about leaving London in the morning and having a full day in New York. Um, uh, but at the same time, I suppose you can still do. I suppose you can still you can still kind of leave London fairly early and get into New York at what would it be noon? Didn't they need to uh, reinforce runways? Wasn't there an issue with runways that the tires were sinking into them because of the pace that or the the weight perhaps? It was a it was a very high landing speed, if I'm right. Um, I'm fairly sure that it landed at a much faster speed than most other planes did. Yeah, I was talking um, to a friend who is a uh, he was doing civil engineering at at uni, and he was telling me about uh, the project was remapping Newcastle's international airport. And one of the things mm. that they needed to do is you need to your your um, planes that are allowed to land are limited by width, length, uh, density of the tarmac and concrete underneath. There's a whole bunch of things that actually restrict the type of planes that are able to land. So I imagine that somewhere at Heathrow there must still be a Concord compatible but slightly aged runway, perhaps. I think I think the main runway at Heathrow would probably be reinforced to that level, given the volume of traffic it takes. Yes. Um, I know that the the, the space shuttle had um, obviously a number of emergency runways around the world uh, where it could land, and you also get this slightly weird thing where you get freakishly long runways where you don't expect them in places like, I think, St. Morgan, which is Newquay Airport, uh, has an incredibly long runway because it was originally a military aircraft, um, airport. Oh. Um, and I've got a big idea that near here, Manston in Kent, the runway is <coughs> the runway's incredibly long. And so I know the space shuttle had to have this various kind of, there was this worldwide network of places it could land in an emergency. It, ne- it never actually, I don't think it ever took advantage of any of them. Um, because with the space shuttle, when things went wrong, they went really wrong. Yes, the um, emergency landing is not the biggest. So the of emergency your landing was never never an issue. Yes, um, but no, I mean, I mean the other thing. The other thing, in a sense, is that um, the time saving is not quite as pronounced with um, supersonic flight as you might hope, so, and it doesn't work either if there's no reliable way of getting to the airport on time. And if, if JFK doesn't build a train to the airport, you basically have to leave two, you know, two and a half hours before your flight to be confident of getting there. Okay. That's one problem. And then the amount of time now, obviously with Concorde, they reduced the amount of time you had to spend dicking around at the airport to some degree. And the amount of time you had to spend dicking around at arrivals. I know, I don't think you went through the standard U S immigration procedure, because imagine how maddening that would be to go on the Concorde for, you know, and pay a fortune to go on the Concorde and then to be detained in an immigration queue for two hours. So they did at least cut down other parts of the journey as well as the parts in flight. 
Um, but I mean, you know, the, the the pain of getting to an airport really adds three hours to the beginning of any long haul flight, unless you live spectacularly close to Heathrow and you're happy really dosing it. Tell you what, um, have, you, have you ever done the journey to America through Dublin, where you immigrate into America in Ireland? Well, I've done I've done the equivalent, which was the which still is actually the British Airways flight from London City, where you land in Shannon to refuel. You clear immigration in Shannon, and then you do an where's, onboard where's flight. Shannon? Uh, it's west coast of Ireland. It's right. actually very beautiful. I mean, it's unbelievably – it's, it's, you, you come in right next to the River Shannon, and it's unbelievably green and lovely. The reason is that the 757 couldn't take off from London City with a completely full fuel load. And so what they did is they combined, they, if, if, if you like, they made a virtue out of necessity, which is they said, okay, we'll take off with a partial fuel load. It was business class only seating. Um, it still exists. It, um, uh, there's one flight a day, I think, or they may have killed it under COVID. London City, and then you 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 land in Shannon while they're refueling the plane, or rather topping the, the, the plane up with fuel to the full load in Shannon. You then clear US immigration, which you can do in Dublin, Shannon, and knock and a few you know wherever else and then then when when you arrive in new york you basically walk straight, straight out it's an internal arrival. flight yeah, yeah it's a, so wild yeah um what do you think about chat gpt and how it's going to impact advertising and the behavioral science world oh god um i'm at some level it's it, it is unbelievably impressive okay in that it kind of passes a sort of Turing test, doesn't it? In that you wouldn't know it wasn't written by a human. And, you know, in some of its things, like, you know, mimicking other writers and so on, it, you know, it's not fabulous, but it doesn't do an atrocious job by any means. You know, Bob Dylan song lyrics or P.G. Woodhouse or whatever else you try and get it to um, emulate. But, um, uh no, um, how would I describe it? I uh, one alarming facet it had, which is that um, a colleague of mine in New York called Chris Graves, and he's made a big scene about this in LinkedIn. He asked it to explain a couple of cognitive biases in the social science literature uh, around human behaviour, and ChatGPT came up with an extremely good and intelligent description of what these biases are. And he said, well, that's handy. You seem to know a lot about this. Please, can you cite academic sources? This is when it got really weird. It made up academic papers that don't exist. It just took a few academics, who, some of whom had published in the field and some of whom hadn't. And it somehow, instead of saying, okay, here are the reliable sources from which I derive my knowledge of uh, you know, human psychological biases, it's just said, okay, what what do citations look like? What 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 do um, academic references look like? Um, I will create a plausible version of these, and in the process, it effectively invented completely non-existent academic papers. Which which was when you think about it, is really weird. What do you think it's doing? So, but cheating. I think I think it's you know it's essentially suggests that it doesn't know what the truth is. Uh, in a funny kind of way, and it merely goes, "How can I say this in a way that looks plausible?" I mean, that, I mean, because 
I mean, you know, two or three of the academics cited in these papers, which they'd never written, um, were actually social science academics. In one case, it was a bit weird because the person seemed to be an expert on magnetic resonance, nothing to do with social science at all. But it's not safe. It's interesting. And to use it as a curiosity seems absolutely fair. But equally, it's not totally safe. I read an article that was very interesting and said that the prediction, this particular author's prediction, was that ChatGPT will become the biggest search engine in the world. Because what you're doing when you go to Google is you're looking for an existing article to be discovered by Google that will give you an answer to the question that you're posing. Whereas what you do when you go to ChatGPT is to just get the answer directly. So you say, I want to make a Manhattan cocktail. And Google would bring you up 400 million different results from blog blogs explaining what a Manhattan cocktail is, whereas you type in the actual query to ChatGPT. Now, one of the problems here is that if there are biases, if there are some sort of predisposition, if it's been trained on a particular type of language, you're going to potentially impact, because there's no crowdsourcing, right? It, it just no. gives you a single answer. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's a concern as well. No, I mean, that, you know, well, you know, it's very heavily reliant on Wikipedia, and I personally find Wikipedia pretty okay, but a lot of people accuse it of political bias. Um, I mean, it was interesting in a sense in that um, I didn't write my own Wikipedia page. Someone else did. Um, but uh, for various reasons, I mean, uh, it was very, very difficult getting a Wikipedia page because once you work in advertising, there are a load of people who basically assume that anybody working in advertising is doing this for reasons of self-publicity. And so people who had no idea who I was, they were, I think, Chinese or Japanese uh, or something of that kind. You know, somebody wrote a page for me and then it kept getting deleted. And the person would go, this just looks like advertising to me. Well, and, and that was partly because I work in advertising, so fairly obviously. Um, uh, and... It, um, it, uh, and, you know, you can argue that, you know, I, I don't know how impartial Wikipedia is politically. It doesn't seem atrocious to me. I mean, it doesn't seem nakedly biased, but it would surprise me equally if the people who are the most active Wikipedia contributors or editors are a realistic cross section of society. Correct. Because not, it, not it takes a pretty sample. damn weird. It takes a pretty damn weird person to want to do that, to be absolutely honest. Okay. Very correct. I saw a, a visualization of the difference between GPT-3 and GPT-4. and the GPT-4 is the one that's not yet released. Is correct. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not out yet. Um, however, apparently GPT-4 is going to be able to write a 60,000-word book from a single prompt in less than a minute because of the amount of data that it's been trained on. It's some obscene amount of data. And they're too frightened to release it, is that right? Not ready yet. Not ready. I think it'll still be, being, still be being trained. Um, I've, heard a, I've heard a contrarian view, which it isn't actually uh, set to replace the search engine. The proper place where this belongs is kind of inside Microsoft Office. How so? Where you have people who are, I suppose the idea is you have people who have work to do and you could say, okay, um, if you could actually talk to, because what what has to say actually for all its faults, its comprehension is very good, isn't it? 
its level of comprehension of a question or of a request is you know, remarkably good compared to Alexa, for example. Um, I haven't yet tried it on banal things like train times, which always strikes me as one of the weirdest Alexa failings, that you can't say, can you tell me the, the times of the next trains from this station to somewhere else? Oh, that's it. Or how long is it going to take me to get to uh, this long, particular... Yeah. I, that's I, I mean, the interesting question is... <sighs> Because there, there are two, there, in a sense, there are two components to it. There's the output, which is very interesting in terms of being uh, grammatically written, with what has to be said is a remarkably low, low level of total garbage. Okay. Um, uh, it, uh, well, except in, in that even when these academic papers were fake, the whole reply looked plausible. Okay. But its comprehension of the question does seem pretty impressive to me. A tool that a and friend so, I was out for dinner with last night uses it for is if he he writes quite advanced nutritional advice and he puts his entire blog post or whatever into it and says, please rewrite this at a third grade le- reading level. So he uses I it to see. dumb down very complex technical talk. And apparently that is very, very successful. I haven't tried that. So, I mean, if you asked it to, we all know that thing, PowerPoint Shakespeare. Um, but if you asked it to take something you'd written as an argument and to condense it into PowerPoint, certainly somebody else sent me the thing where they'd asked me to ask ChatGPT to summarize, uh, you know, my uh, books or work or something. And it did a pretty damn good job, I, I have to say. And then there's the second question, which is, you know, uh, are we nearing a point where the speech interface, or at least we actually, we're typing full sentences, to some extent replaces what you might call the push button point and click interface? Mm, everything would just now, be I, speech commands. Yeah, so I mean, it is interesting in that, okay, um, one of the things that's a sort of interesting finding, and I'm not quite sure what the explanation is. I think there are multiple reasons. But in customer service, for example, um, even though live chat is inordinately slower than speech. Okay. Okay, sorry. Are you back on? Can you hear me? I can, yep. Oh, for some weird reason, it's it's bit... Okay, hold on. Uh, let me try this. I, I need to go back onto the headphones. Why does it drop the headphones? I think you might have poked it with your hand. Ah, shit. Okay, well, don't <laughs> worry. Um, uh, people, people weirdly really, really like. Um, uh, people really, really like. What the hell is going on here? Um, hold on, snapshot, stare screen. Oh, damn it! Well, never mind. Okay. Um, people really like live chat as a form of customer service. Yes. Uh, the way you make it work economically is the people who are doing the live chat both use sort of boilerplate answers, which they can just cut and paste. In many cases, they don't have to type the whole thing from scratch. And they're also handling three customers simultaneously, uh, which is how you make it work economically. But it's much, much slower than a spoken phone call. And yet the levels of customer satisfaction, even though it's slower, are much, much higher. Is that because you can do something else whilst you're chatting to them? 
Yeah, I, th- I think I think there are probably multiple reasons. A, I suppose, if they have to pass you on to somebody else, uh, the you know, the transcript can get passed on to the next person, so you don't have that infuriating thing of having to repeat yourself. That must be part of it. Um, and um, sorry about that. That's all right. If you're still fighting with it, we can uh, hang fire until that. you get it right. Um, there we are. Is that right? Yeah, I think we're back again anyway. There we are. We'll try this. Um, but um, so there is an interesting question, which is, are people actually happier with, you know, we obviously defaulted to this point-and-click interface uh, for a time when it was much, much faster and pleasanter and gave us an illusion of control, whereas one of the things that makes voice interfaces absolutely hopeless is when, you know, I mean, Alexa is by no means, you know, I mean, for example, local train times um, uh, in voice. Uh, my local station from which I nearly always travel into London is called Otford, which is spelled O-T-F-O-R-D. Well, I mean, forget about asking about trains from Otford because nine times out of ten, you'll get a list of trains going to Didcot from Oxford. Um, uh, but there is, there, is, there is an element where if the voice or text perception was good enough and didn't generate absolutely nonsensical responses, you know, or responses that were totally blind to context, like the time when I used, might have been Google in this case, uh, I was driving home from work and I wanted pharmacies that were currently open. And it gave me a list of pharmacies in Atlanta, Georgia, which were indeed currently open, <laughs> but were of limited use to me. Okay. And... Um, so there may be, I, I suppose, um, you know, there, there may be a kind of component where, um, where at, strangely, we go back to command prompts with our interaction with, with computers. We're actually just using spoken language or typed language is so much easier than going through some weird routine of button pressing and menu pointing. I wonder whether there's a concern about the amount of control that people have. So we've spoken about this on the show before where um, someone would much rather be killed by a person driving than injured by an automatic driving vehicle. Because there's just something, if you were to put a vocal prompt into uh, some sort of word processor or some sort of computer and it got it wrong, you would feel so aggrieved. You would feel completely hard done by if you'd meant it to order from this particular restaurant and it ordered from yes, somewhere else. Yeah. Whereas if you press the button, at least you feel culpable for it. And I wonder whether it might just be a case of acclimatizing to your level of uh, or, 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 trust. Or in other words, the, the, you know, the thing would have to repeat. You you'd repeat the booking word for word. And Do say, you mean Is the last correct? days of the Raj <coughs> Indian restaurant? Yes. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. What have you been? Yeah. What have you been obsessed with? It's worth noting that it's worth noting that when you go back to my childhood, you know, the most of you know, Orac, you may remember from Blake Seven. No, you don't. You don't remember Blake Seven I at all. Not, okay. I'm afraid. But the one one of the common interface, well, Hal, for that matter, okay, the interface with a computer was assumed to be speech. You know, Hal did not have a graphical user interface, right? And so there is something really, really interesting there, which is that you can, um, uh, and I mean, the, you know, the great problem you have with Amazon Alexa is they've spent billions on the thing, and ninety percent of the requests are basically for the time, the weather, or 
something, you know, th th there is one huge benefit, by the way, of Alexa, which I discovered, which is that when you're half awake early in the morning, now, uncomfortable as I am about having Alexa in the bedroom, for obvious reasons, okay, um, uh, when you're half awake, you can find out what the time is without opening your eyes. Mm. Now, once you open your eyes to look at a digital clock, there's a danger that you then wake up. But if Alexa replies while your eyes are still shut, that it's actually you know 4.57, then you can basically doze off straight back to sleep again without that slight problem of, of searing off the, your retinas by looking at a digital <laughs> clock in the middle of the you dark. There, it, so, is a, yeah. it is a game of chicken. When you wake up on a morning yeah. to know when you how, wake up, it is absolutely a game of chicken. Yeah, how yeah. much light do I want to let in? What have you been obsessed by recently? Have you had any new purchases? We've we've spoken, I think, in the past. I want to say you tried to get me to buy a glass sided toaster. I didn't. Yeah, I I didn't become part of your movement there. Although I did get my parents to buy a air fryer, and then they upgraded to an air fryer with pressure cooker in one wow and they went to the whole ninja thing didn't Correct. they oh yeah 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 they're happy with it aren't they oh they they are i don't think that they use anything else i don't think that they, no. they it sits on top of the cooker and now is is the cooker in itself so what else has there been anything else you were ford mustang Mackey, glass-sided toaster uh, uh, and okay that's very very interesting so the um i have to say um the the air fryer continues its magic. The Japanese toilet uh, never loses its magic. I'm down here in Deal where I don't have a Japanese toilet. And the gap between using a Japanese toilet and using a conventional toilet is roughly equivalent to the gap between um, using a conventional toilet and shitting in a bucket <laughs> in prison. Okay. <laughs> Right. Okay. That's roughly speaking, you know, the uh, the yawning sense of kind of reversion you feel when you go from using a Japanese toilet to a conventional one. It's barbaric. It's ridiculous, and it will just stop. Um, the air fryer maintains its magic. I mentioned these bone conducting headphones, which I think for a joggers, b the elderly, and c people who don't want to become disoriented by you know, walking around with no knowledge of what, what, what's going on around them, okay, um, which tends to happen with noise-cancelling headphones. I like the fact that they cancel noise, but it's also kind of disquieting in a way. You can turn it on and off, I'm glad that. Um, so th those are interesting in that they have an application, and for certain people I think could be very, very useful. Um, my father's stair lift, I strongly suspect to anybody elderly – uh, listening to this, or anybody with a long memory listening to this, that almost everybody leaves getting a stair lift too long, too late. Because they want to resist. They have all this whole thing about the exercise of going up and down stairs is good for you. They want to retain independence as long as they can. Well, there's no compulsion to use a stair lift simply because you have one. But to my father, that's been absolutely transformative. What I also didn't realize is you don't need to put any, you don't need to drill into the wall at all. The whole track for the stair lift is a fairly discreet strip of metal that just goes up the flight of stairs and is basically uh, screwed into the wood of the stairs, not into the masonry of the wall. Um, so as an important, you know, I, I think what you might call gerontotech uh, of how you manage aging and caring through technology will be an enormous source of progress um, uh, in, in the next 10 years and, and a, a very worthwhile area for investment, I think. Geron um, technology. Well, other things, yeah. uh, other, other, other things which um, 
because uh, the, the things that where the magic never really goes um I've gone back to using a tablet again after about a four-year hiatus. Um, what tablet of choice? Uh, I've got the Samsung uh, Galaxy S8, the eight-inch um, thing, which I have to say is is absolutely excellent. Um, and th- that's main, mainly for reading and um, uh, 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 reading newspapers and uh, reading b- books, etc., and watching films occasionally. Um, I'm happy to have gone back to a tablet after, as I said, after a long period making do without one. Um, I th- uh, what, no, the other th- the other point I would make about the electric car is that the well, I've I've had one now for a, I guess it must be a year and four months or something. One I don't have charging at home, and um, I, I'm shortly to get charging installed at home, but um, I. I delayed and fudged around and needed to liaise with the neighbours about having a new three-phase supply um, uh, put in. And uh, oddly, given that that's a period of about 15, 16 months, I have found it surprisingly non-problematic to actually have an electric car without home charging. So for any Londoners listening, you know, well, we, we can't get an electric car because there's nowhere for us to charge, uh, you know, charge at home particularly given the utterly feeble distances London has managed to drive. Um, uh, I don't think that there is actually a problem. I, I genuinely don't think that is an issue um, in the slightest. Um, and also the, the weird pleasure of driving an electric car with regenerative braking and single pedal driving uh, is a pleasure that never goes away or hasn't yet. I drove my months. first uh, Tesla model why is that the big one why is the big one uh but the taller was, one yeah correct um but it was the ludicrous or the plaid edition of this thing or whatever and for the first time ever i was just pulling it after going from naught to 16 some terrifying amount of time uh, i then was trying to pull around a corner and took my foot off the accelerator like you would to allow it to coast around a corner yes and the fucking thing stopped i thought hang on a second so i i, I I take my foot off of the accelerator and the brakes get deployed. Yes. I'm like, okay, right. This is an entire new type of driving that I need well, to learn. Most of the braking will actually be regenerative. So that's it. So uh, in a conventional car, particularly an automatic, when you take your foot off the accelerator, the car continues to coast. Creeps. Yeah. Because it would be, it would be, wait, would it be wasteful for it not to coast, uh, in a sense, because you'd be throwing away momentum. Okay. Whereas in an electric car, because the momentum actually gets recaptured by the battery, um, uh, there's no particular reason why uh, you shouldn't just decelerate with the accelerator uh, with no particular need. I mean, I go for miles at a time without using the brakes in any shape or form. Uh, You just anticipate by throttling off, the car slows down. Uh, the brake lights come on even if the brakes aren't deployed sometimes to uh, to notify cars behind oh, you that you're smart. going to be accelerating at a faster pace than they might typically expect. Um, but it's actually um, uh, it's a lovely way to drive, partly because you don't have a feeling of resentment when you lose speed. What makes cyclists wankers, okay? Uh, I, I tried an electric bike. That strikes me as quite an interesting technology for two reasons, which is that um, the, the dirty secret of bikes, as I said, is that when you cycle uphill, it's no faster than walking. Secondly, there is only a limited range of 
demographies and levels of physical fitness who can really cycle. Thirdly, acceleration is painful and slow. Okay. Fourthly, very large areas of the Earth's surface are totally ill-suited to cycling. I mean, Lisbon, for example, or Bath, okay, or one of those hilly, or Durham, you know, okay, you know, having a bike in Durham, Newcastle wouldn't be terrible, but there would be chunks of Newcastle, which would be awful, I imagine, right? And um, uh, so, you know, when you factor that in, the electric bike, which basically means that uphill and accelerating, and for people who are less than, you know, Lance Armstrong fit, okay, um, it actually becomes a viable mode of transport, assuming the weather's good enough, or assuming that you design a completely different kind of bike, which actually has some sort of protection from the elements, which I suppose is another consideration. Because the great advantage there is, A, you'll be able to make bikes slightly inefficient, fatter tyres for comfort, wider seats, also possibly some sort of rain shielding because the electricity will basically counterbalance the aerodynamic inefficiencies of those things so that you can actually cycle in something which isn't absolutely optimized around titanium and narrow tires, which are hopeless in urban environments, for example. You know, you know, you hit a pothole at the wrong angle and, the, you know, there's total carnage and disaster. And so the electric bike is interesting, I have to say. Um, <coughs> and... Um, uh, I, I gave I gave one of those a brief test drive and was quite and was quite 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 impressed. In fact, um, it took a little bit of mastery, but that's partly because it's bloody years since I've cycled at all. Um, and uh, other things, um, but that does strike me as quite significant because um, one of the reasons, and this is well, this is why I come back to the electric car and regenerative braking. Okay, one of the reasons cyclists are assholes is that because accelerating is really painful, they have this mentality of maintain momentum at any cost, which causes them to sort of leap onto the pavement, ignore red lights, go at precipitous speed through roundabouts without paying much attention. Now, I don't totally blame them for that because, you know, if you imagine driving a car where every time you press, you press the accelerator, you know, electrodes in your testicles gave you a sharp burst of pain, you know, we'd all drive like assholes. And in the bike, you know, because it's painful getting up speed and it's slow, they have this sunk cost problem, which is they're desperately unwilling to slow down unless it's absolutely necessary. But the great thing with the electric car and regenerative braking is because you feel you're getting your energy back when you slow, you don't have that same, fe same resentful feeling if you're forced to slow down a bit. Instead of going, this bastard, by turning so slowly, has robbed me of my hard-won kinetic energy, you just go, oh, okay, energy back into the tank for later, and then off you go again. What's and happening? Uh... Electric vehicles are very, very good for things like delivery vehicles, which do a lot of stop-go motoring. Well, I mean, that was the original milk float, right, mm. in the UK. Mm. That was a, a Tesla before it was a Tesla. What's happening? You, you're uh, moving through different vapes here. What's happening with the vaping debate at the moment? I've seen uh, certain companies have been cracked down on for uh, making flavors that are basically too tasty, that kind of entice young younger kids to get into <laughs> vaping and stuff like that. My own view is this is a total nonsense, okay, and that this um, – uh, what, uh, watch if I know it's not the world's most common, <coughs> you commonly use streaming service, but Plex 
has, which you can get on smart TVs and so on and Google Chrome TV. Someone once uh, gave me a, an illegal login to that where I could watch every movie ever created. Someone gave me like an <laughs> access code to, it's like a hard drive. It's like you can stream hard drives and stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely right. But Plex has on it a film called One Billion Lives, which is <coughs> obviously made by vaping enthusiasts, but it actually um, co-opts some pretty hard-ass, serious medical scientists talking about the fact that, you know, because in middle-class Western milieu, the number of people smoking is small, um, then people tend to think of the smoking problem as having been solved. But if you take the world's population as a whole, they would they, their argument is that, look, the wider legalization, um, the um, deregulation of vaping and other forms of nicotine delivery device has the potential to save a billion lives. And their accusations, sometimes leveled at big pharma, funnily enough, not big tobacco. Big tobacco is oddly, in a sense, because they've invested in vaping technologies, they're not actually the... Um, uh, the, the evil presence you might have expected. But Big Pharma, which had invested in a lot of fairly ineffectual patches and sprays and gums, only to find that at the last minute some hipsters came up with a better idea, um, has played dirty. And the the extent to which governments have been persuaded to ban flavours, to ban disposables, for example. There's an environmental case for banning disposables. Um, and also the endless um, recurrence of this argument, oh, but children have been doing it, okay? Well, my argument there is I've got two children aged 21 at university surrounded by a pretty active drug culture and a lot of booze, okay? Worry number 407 on my list is they might take up vaping, okay? Of all the things they could do, you know, something which has actually pretty trivial, short, medium, and I would argue long-term effects, that has very few negative externalities on the people around them. Um, you know, the demonization of nicotine, as distinct from um, burning tobacco, has been one of the most extraordinary kind of wasted human efforts or misdirected human efforts uh, of the last 20 years. Because it's you know it's coffee basically, I mean, as a, you know as a drug, it's, it's that kind of thing. Now, um, the children argument. That one of the great things is that flavors by getting you hooked on a flavor that's very unlike the flavor of burning tobacco is a great way of getting people off smoking, right? Because switching back to smoking cigarettes would be pretty untasteful. Yeah. Weird and kind of horrible. Yep. Um, does it, you know, do I care that 23-year-olds who can get hold of ecstasy, you know, LSD, cocaine, etc., do I care that they're buying elf bars? Not really. And I, I always think it's a, you know, that, oh, the children, oh, the young people. It's kind of a bullshit argument, actually, because, um, I mean, off, you know, I shouldn't say this. No, I, I won't say it, actually, because I prefer not to share the information. But actually, I mean, even smoking cigarettes below a certain age, provided you quit, and that's a very big provided, by the way, um, doesn't have massively deleterious effects on on health. Yeah, the concern is uh, the gateway, right? I mean, I've noticed this, especially since being in Texas. It's, it's a gateway out. 
uh, it, it really is a gateway. Is it a gateway to cigarettes? We've seen absolutely zero evidence of that, I would have said. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point, actually. And it is a, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a gateway. So what's happening? In, so you're in Texas at the moment, are you? I am, yeah, so I live here now. Uh, I've been here for just under a year. And um, because of the existing culture of dip, dipping tobacco over ah, here, yeah. Um, Snus, those little pillowcases yes. that you slot in between your lip and your gum, those are insanely popular over here. This yeah. is absolutely everyone hammers these, and they come in all manner of different flavors and different sizes. They they do a two milligram all the way up to a, a twenty milligram nicotine dosage. Please, yeah, yeah. yeah which, I mean, twenty milligram would make me immediately want to throw up, but. Yeah, that's that's something that people use. But it's so interesting because the culture's already been primed here through the existing heritage of dip and using dipping tobacco, which this is the cooler, less disgusting. I don't need to have a, a bottle and into it every 30 seconds or whatever because I've got some awful buildup in my mouth. Uh, that's that's incredibly popular over here. So, so how is Texas more liberal than most states in regulating vaping as well? I'm not sure about that. I mean... It, the vapes are everywhere. They're sold on the street. They're sold in corner shops. People are using them indoors in comedy clubs, in gigs, in bars, everywhere that I go. Yeah, this, this is this is where I like Texas, actually. Um, I don't know what people said before I moved here. Everyone was like, "Oh, you're going to kind of the diluted down, like PG version of Texas by going to Austin. It's a blue dot. Yes, that a, is true. Yeah, it's yeah, a blue yeah, dot yeah, in a but, red ocean. And I don't know. It might just be a selection effect for the people that I hang around. But I'm like, I see no no hints of blue here at all. Like, there's I don't see a massive amount of progressivism or liberal overreach or you know the the woke tards in the street. Like, there's none of that that I see in Austin. It just seems like it just seems like Texas <laughs> with young people. It's a university town, a great music town, it's a fantastic food town, it's a brilliant town. And actually, uh, also, people tend to take on, to an extent, the mores of the of the pre-existing culture. Um, and I, I, I've, only been to, I've only been to Austin once, I absolutely loved it, but um, uh, I... Um, uh, but I also, I also love Houston, Dallas, I, everywhere I've been in Texas, I've found people absolutely charming. I, I like that thing of screw this. I'm going to vape at the comedy club. You know that slight kind of independence of my, independent mindedness yes. is really really healthy. Talk to me. You've been big into this ergodicity thing for for quite a while. I was thinking about how that and Bayesian updating and all the rest of it kind of applies to people's life design. Have you got a a good way that people can increase their chances of getting lucky in life? One thing I think that you might say is, is an intelligent evolutionary adaptation is that the young are ex more experimental than the old for a reason, um, which is that they have less experience to draw on, so they need to experiment more, but they also have more future life to profit from experimentation. So if older people become more conservative, it's partly a perfectly rational response, effectively summed up in the phrase, I know what I like. Okay, and they have more experience to draw on, and therefore, um, you know, the likelihood that they'll suddenly discover a new holiday destination which is two hundred percent better than their best current estimate of what a holiday destination would be is low when you're seventy. Whereas when you're twenty-five, it's it's by no means impossible, right? You can discover something which is sensationally better 
Um, that's interesting. The fact that when you're old, even if you do discover something sensationally better, you've only got five years to enjoy it, also probably makes older people conservative because the lifetime remaining gains to experimentation are also shorter. So the fact that we see that decline in openness as people go on through life is, uh, is to some extent probably a sensible evolutionary mechanism in all kinds of ways so is the um, apl- is the applied solution there for younger people to say yes to more new experiences to go on adventures to yeah, try new yeah, things but, but but not to get massively angry with older people uh, for not doing so there's, there's another book which i really recommend actually to everybody listening called algorithms to live by which is by i think brian christian and yes. somebody griffiths um or griffith actually and um uh, one of the most interesting things, which if you're old, was one of the best things I've read in terms of uh, generally uplifting information. The reason when you get older that you find it often slower to retrieve information is not because of deteriorating mental faculties. It's because you know more, okay, or you've accumulated more information, and therefore more of what you know needs to be stored in kind of the slower access parts of the brain. So that one of the reasons why, you know, I mean, you notice this extraordinary if you see there's a university challenge program in the UK and then there's the kind of, there's the celebrity university challenge around Christmas where people tend to be in their 40s and 50s. And the people in their 40s and 50s kind of know more, but they're much, much slower at extracting the information. And the reason is that the amount that can be stored on kind of RAM is finite and therefore, more of what you know as an old person actually takes time to retrieve. So much wisdom then, that you've got to dig through. And, and, and actually, if you told old, you know, because a lot of people when they hit their 40s and 50s are convinced that this phenomenon is a sign of mental deterioration. You know, you know, you go, yeah, you know, French chap, ate a cake, dipped it in, you know, Marcel, Mar- Proust, right? Whereas the 22-year-old at University Challenge just goes, eh, Marcel Proust. Okay, is deeply disquieting, I think, to a lot of older people. And if you told them this, it would massively cheer them up. Just as actually, I think it's quite important to tell people that, um, is it particularly men, that your level of happiness weirdly tends to uh, be a little bit U shaped, that people in middle age have the lowest level of life satisfaction, and then it actually rises again more or less continuously after you pass through sort of middle to is it middle to late middle age i can't remember but there's yeah, the, some period the biggest uh, the biggest suicide risk for men at the moment is 40 to 45 uh, is that 40 really yeah. it's, it's no longer young men no it's 40 it's, to 45 it seems to be this was uh max dickens and matt rudd uh both two separate books last year uh one was billy no mates and the other from uh matt rudd who is the guy from the sunday times i can't quite remember the name of it but it was good and he was on the show um was algorithms to live by the book where brian suggested that if you were trying to find a partner you should yeah, go probably, yeah. 33 people in and then once you find a person who is better than those first 33 you just Stop. go with them yeah and of course, you probably don't have to have an extensive relationship with all 33, you know, because that would, you know, living with people for a year and then ditching them 33 times would, would not make you popular, perhaps. Um, but the, the it's known for, in a very sexist way, as the secretary problem, because it was first posed as a, um, you could only interview secretaries one at a time. 
you um, once you've rejected someone, you have no chance of following up. So it's slightly artificial, artificial depiction of the problem. And the question is, how you know how many should you interview uh, before? you reach this point where you go, okay, the next one who comes along. And it's, it, it's partly the explore-exploits trade-off, and it's partly the trade-off between uh, having too little information to benchmark what a good secretary might be like versus having too few secretaries left that you're in danger of running out. And so I think it is, if you have 100 secretaries lined up, I think the optimal strategy is something, is it 60-something? I think it was I 30. I thought it was in the 30s. It could well be 30, yeah. I think it yeah. might be in the 30s. Um, one so of the- you, interview the first, you interview the first 30, and then you've, you've set your peak, the best of the 30 you've seen, and then the next, as soon as one comes along who's better than or as good as that, you choose that. Away you yeah. go. One of the things that I've been noticing online, especially in the post-Trump world, this allure of black and white thinking, which has been quite reductionist, people... Uh, seem to be ever more seduced by uh, low nuance. Uh, yes, and, and actually, so for example, it even expresses itself with um, being unwilling to accept that something might be acceptable in a comedy club, which is unacceptable in a business meeting or a church meeting or whatever it may be. Yes. So the unwillingness to acknowledge the fact that the rules change according to context. Um, and therefore demanding that you can – and the thing, the thing about it is, I think, it is characteristic of people in their late teens and perhaps early 20s. I think there's something kind of slightly sophomoric about it in that most older people, once they've been – particularly if they've spent any time working in an office, know that the answer to a hell of a lot of questions is it depends – Okay, and there's something fundamentally wrong with our education system if it isn't effectively showing people that a very large number of questions should be answered with, I don't know, I need more information. And this need to be able to make an absolute pronouncement on almost anything, regardless of context, uh, is, is fundamentally a bit weird. So if you take the transgender question, you know, well, here's an example, okay. In every single social situation I can imagine, okay, you would treat a transgender person uh, 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 as a member of their preferred gender and in accordance with their identity. But as a doctor, it would be completely wrong to treat a transgender person as though they were female, okay, because... Obviously, you have to make an acknowledgement for special circumstances. And therefore, it doesn't seem to me impossible that you can say, well, maybe in prisons or women's refuges, we need to actually rethink this general principle. In other words, you have a principle which is true to the extent that it is possible to make it true, but where you may have to actually make concessions according to certain particular situations. In the same way, I mean, I, I had a, it's a very simple thing which is, um, I'll, I'll give you the classic example of this, which is something which divides a completely different group of people, i.e. not, uh, you know, TERFs or militantly accurate feminists, which is in the UK, now apologies to Americans because the general patterns of behaviour are totally different in the US, okay? Is it okay to drive in the middle lane of the motorway? Okay, 
And the, the answer to that is actually, and people, people will take an incredibly strong view. And the answer to that is, has to be, it depends, right? Because given that cars can only travel at a slower speed when you have a high level of traffic density, okay? If you had everybody traveling at 60 miles an hour and insisting on all traveling on the left-hand lane of the motorway, leaving the other two lanes empty, okay, that would massively slow down traffic and be an incredible waste of road, okay? So it is not actually wrong to use the middle lane of the motorway under all circumstances. You should obviously be fairly attentive to what's happening behind you and so on and so forth. But what people want to do is they, they don't accept this fact that in a complex system, you occasionally need to take account of more than one or two or three factors in making a decision. What is they this, go, what's this allure towards black and white thinking or the uh, dis, displeasure that people have with more subtle or complex or nuanced opinions? Where does that come from, do you think? Um, you get a lot of people... Um, well, you could argue uh, that... Um, a lot of people found that clarity in religion uh, 100 years ago. That people who wanted that, I, I need to be told, you know, you know, a series of good heuristics by which to live life without having to work everything out for first principles, which isn't a totally ridiculous requirement, okay? Uh, they would have, you know, they would have found a religion to accommodate that or, that, you know, something of that kind. Whereas... I, the one thing that does worry me is, does it come from our education system, which is leading people to believe that there must be a right answer? There is an op. In other words, you know, one of the interesting things when you get curious about decision science is not everything's an optimization problem. There are an awful lot of human behaviors which make no sense to people who are inverted commas rationalists because they assume that what the person is trying to do is to optimize when actually what they're trying to do is to decatastrophize. Nassim Taleb and I, uh, the, the, the observation that people in Milan railway station are eating at McDonald's, okay? They're not trying to get the best meal they can find in Milan, okay? What they're doing is basically, you know, there will be search costs and everything else attributed to that, granted. But what they're trying to do is to get something to eat which has a very, very low chance of making the meal or being disappointing or a ripoff. And McDonald's is absolutely brilliant at not being crap. And so, depend, you know, it's very, very dangerous to declare people irrational unless you know deep down, both consciously and unconsciously, what they're really trying to do. Uh, brand preference, I always give the argument that a large part of brand preference is not, I want Samsung TVs because they're better, but it's, I'll happily pay 100 bucks more for a Samsung TV because I'm fairly confident it's not going to be shit. And when you think about it, the reputational mechanism works because if you've invested billions in your brand as a massive sunk cost, you have much more to lose in terms of future revenue and profit through selling a shit television than someone who nobody's ever heard of. You know, when you go on Amazon and search for TV and you get all those kind of scrabble rack brands called Wujagu or whatever, right? Well, why should they care? Why should they invest in quality control? Because they don't really have a reputation at stake in the first place. I heard that Sky Glass, which was Sky's attempt, yep. was, uh, I, I saw a bunch of reviews as it was coming out and then once it came out from tech people, and it just got smashed. It got completely annihilated as the protein pancake problem, which is what 
I've referred to, when you try and blend two products that previously were very well optimized on their own into one product which is shitter than either of them were and worse than they both would be separately. So protein powders have been pretty well optimized. They're quite tasty. They're pretty much a Nesquik that's got 30 grams of protein in. Pancakes, for almost all of time, have been fantastic. If you try and make good (coughs) protein pancakes, they usually end up being a clumpy, horrible mess. And what Sky's tried to do is integrate your Sky membership into a television so that it is a one-stop shop. But the TV underperforms. The Sky system that interacts with it is bad. And it's trying to beat a Kindle Fire Stick, which is absolutely blazing fast and already people's existing fantastic samsung tv which they they know and the interface is optimized as well it's very interesting isn't it because i mean one of the things i talk about with television by the way which is fascinating is that um uh there is an amount of money and nobody knows what it is i imagine you could get it through a freedom of information request that the bbc has to pay samsung to put iplayer in a prominent position and the samsung smart hub and Samsung has it in its power, indeed has already done so, to make the hub the default starting point for all viewing periods. When I first got a Samsung TV years ago, you could activate the hub, but it was by pressing a very weird button on, which was one of about 47 buttons on the remote control. And as we all know, you never press the weird buttons on your remote control because they can make your TV go weird, irrecoverable for you know the next half hour the aspect you know, ratios some, are for all the of the blacks have gone over, white or an yeah. enormous green number two appear by which i mean literally a number two appears in the top left of the screen you know and you can't make it go away you yeah. know that kind of thing and the modern samsung tv comes with two remote controls one of which is blissfully simple and that's the one you use all the time and every time you you're not sure what to do you press a button with a house on it which is something we feel incredibly comfortable doing. You either press back or house, and surprise, surprise, that takes you to the Samsung Smart Hub. Previously, we turned on a TV, and probably it was broadcast TV by default, then it was Sky by default, and now it's whatever Samsung wants it to be. And the power they enjoy in that is absolutely spectacular. Yes, so there will be at some point later this year, I haven't signed a contract yet, but... Um, this podcast is going to be featured on a number of airlines and it's going to be able to be used in in-flight entertainment. And as the discussion has gone on, I asked this particular guy that is handling the acquisition of the content on the library um, what he intends on doing with it. And he said, some insane percentage of what gets viewed on in-flight entertainment is based on the first screen's tiles of what shows up. So if you want everybody to watch Bullet Train with Brad Pitt, and that's tile number three of six, it's going to get... It's the same as being above the fold on Google, right? It's like you're on the first page of Google or basically you're not on Google because everybody's going to click on something on the first page, usually the first result. So it's a power law distribution that the thing that appears first gets 50%, the thing that appears... Yeah, 100%. Going back to the thing that you said about young people, I learned a concept that I gave a term to from a friend, Gwinda Bogle, uh, and he said... You can gauge someone's ignorance by the number of phenomena they explain with the same answer. Those who blame many different issues like war, poverty or pollution on just one cause, like capitalism, are recycling explanations because the demand for answers outstrips their supply. And I referred to that as monothinking. 
Yeah, uh, funnily enough, a friend of mine calls it, who's Indian, interestingly, calls it monotheorism. We're not far off. uh, And as a Hindu, he always jokes that um, people in the West have a particular propensity to monotheorism because they need one God to be behind everything. Whereas he says as a Hindu, they're completely happy with ambiguity. Very good. And they're polytheoristic. I mean... You know, one of the interesting ones is that, you know, all social ills are down to social media always strikes me as a bit too fucking easy. And I've always said one of my mischievous ones is that uh, some part of what might be more obnoxious behaviour in people may be down to the decline in smoking. Now, if you think about it, if you have a society, if you have a society where, uh, which 20, 30 years ago, 50 to 60% of people regularly took what was a kind of relaxing drug, okay? And now that's down to 10%. You would expect, and of course the effect could be magnified through social network effects, you would expect some change, just as if you put everybody on, you know, well, opiates, okay? (laughs) You'd notice a change in general behaviour. Surely mass withdrawal from drugs is going to have some visible effect. And yet it has been assumed that 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 effect can't be there. Well, why not? I mean, one of the weirder theories is that, you know, there's an equal body of belief which suggests a very eccentric opinion that, you know, tobacco, tea, coffee were major contributors to the Enlightenment. And so, you know, it it is kind of me, I have to say, but you're right. The the the, um, the need to go yes because capitalism, or you know, there's, there's a wonderful sketch about this that dates back to you know where you you recite something bad that had happened and go Thatcher, okay, right? Now you know it's it's it is slightly amusing to me, <laughs> which is that um, to people born long after actually Thatcher left office, okay, it's seen as this absolutely pivotal changing point in British history where beforehand everything was supposedly absolutely lovely. It was like the Beatles and flower power and free love. Completely forgetting the 1970s altogether. Okay. And then you had Thatcher and it all got nasty and greedy and self-interested. And I actually, you know, I, you know, I mean, pre Thatcher, there was a lot of extraordinary human unpleasantness of all kinds. Maybe it was less greedy. That possibly is true. But there were all forms of manifestation of genuine, really malicious nastiness and unpleasantness, which, if anything, diminished in the 1980s. Um, and it, it, but it's so easy to have, you know, as you said, that, that stupidity... I mean, actually, creativity is also trying to imagine... Um, things that could be much more important factors than that they're generally given credit for. You know, is this because, um, uh, you know, uh, and actually, you know, I mean, uh, it's a classic case of wanting the rules of a simple system also to apply to a complex system. And I've been talking to doctors recently about obesity and it looks as though there may be a group of people who are fat very largely simply because their um, their biome, uh, the microbiota uh, in their gut, are just very good at extracting energy from food. And so you eat the same. Some people have, for whatever reason, a mix of microflora, which just aren't that great at extracting calorific value from food. 
I mean, things like, you know, I mean, that's another classic case in one the whole mind-body dualism thing is a classic case of saying, you know, okay, in order to make the world comprehensible, I'm going to pretend these things are entirely unrelated and that you have willpower and that, you know, your body and your bodily state and your digestive state and so forth has no influence on your behavior. And that's, again, an attempt to say, okay, what we'll do is we'll divide the world into watertight compartments for purposes of tractability and comprehension and proceed from there. And, you know, it's it's great in high school physics to do that shit. It doesn't really work anywhere else. I mean, the extreme case is to say that science is a bit of a con because it hives off that very small proportion of big decisions that can actually be solved definitively uh, with a single right answer and where you have all the data you need to make the decision um, at the very start of the process, okay? Um, and it hives those off, uh, points to his extraordinary success in areas like engineering um, and effectively lays the effectively claims the credit for writing the exam first and then solving it. It's marking its own homework to some extent because anybody can be clever if they're given 5,000 exam questions, okay, and they're asked to solve the 10 they like the best. What can people expect from you next? What are you doing for the rest of this year? Um, I'm going to be writing a book called Slogan, I think, which is how, um, you know, it takes sort of 30, 40, 50 of the world's best advertising lines and then dissects them from a kind of behavioral science angle to say what they tell us about ourselves, our unconscious and our society. That's cool. So looking at persuasion, I think that can be quite interesting. Um, I'm a big fan of this business of taking something and um, just looking at it through a, a peculiar lens. There's a wonderful thing on YouTube, which is, I don't know if you've ever seen the YouTube channel, Ask a Mortician. Have you? No. What's that? No, okay. So Ask a Mortician is a woman who works as an undertaker or mortician in the United States. And there's a film she made about 30 minutes long, which is, why didn't JFK have an open casket? Or why did JFK's casket stay closed? Now, you know, the whole Kennedy assassination thing is the most, you know, overraked uh, period of, you know, three days in 20th century history, pretty much. Okay, you know, <laughs> every single thing, every single person in the crowd in the Zapruder film has been subject to kind of microscopic analysis. But this is just taking the whole thing and telling the story from the point of view of, you know, the morticians, you know, going obviously where they got the casket from, the fact that <laughs> the... Fact that the um, uh, the fact that the Secret Service commandeered the hearse from the local mortician to drive to Love Field, I think it was, where Air Force One was waiting, had no idea how to operate the detaching mechanism that allowed you to remove a coffin from a hearse. And so in order to get the coffin in the plane, there were basically loads of Secret Service guys with crowbars basically <laughs> cracking this thing to bits. No way. To get it out of the hearse. Because no they way. refused to take anybody they refused to take anybody from the undertakers with them. They just commandeered the vehicle. <laughs> And, and so it, it, what it is, is it takes a very, very familiar, well-worn story and just adds a completely new perspective on it. And, you know, well, sheds it, completely new light. That's where monothinking becomes interesting, right? If you have a single optimizing function that someone it, but, is looking it, at it from. It, it, 
it, it's it, no, no, absolutely. So that what you might call that nerd thinking, where you actually take a very, very different uh, point of view. Um, what you're doing then with mono thinking is, I think, complementary to the main dialogue. It's orthogonal, if all right? You're doing, if all you're doing is taking everybody else's mono thinking, okay, you're just contributing to the two dimensionality of the whole field. But if you actually go over at ninety degrees orthogonally and say, okay. Uh, what shadows are cast if we point the light over here? That's when it gets interesting. Amazing. You know? um, do you know? Because, Ri- because no one, no one's claiming that asking mortician is the complete and definitive answer. <laughs> that. But what it does is it's a completely fresh light on what was going on. Yes. Um, very interesting. Very interesting thing. There was a Texas. Um, uh, I guess he must have been. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, what, what do you call it when you have? Um, the guy, the guy who was the Texas coroner in Dallas, okay, and one of the reasons there was such a massive conspiracy theory is they refused to let this coroner perform the autopsy. And he's often portrayed as being a bit of an ass because he refused to let the president's body go and be flown back to D.C. But he was entirely correct in that if a death occurs in Texas in his jurisdiction, it's on it him. Is absolutely his responsibility to, to do it, whether it's the president of the United States or someone found dead in a shop doorway. And so it was very, it was very interesting from that point of view, because I'd always heard of this guy as like being like Mr. Difficult, trying to muscle in. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not, not that case at all. He was entirely correct in what he was trying to do, and they were entirely wrong. And this is Ask a Mortician. Yeah, Ask a Mortician, I think it's called, yeah. Phenomenal. Um, do you know Richard Shotton? He wrote The Choice Factory a few years Brilliant. ago. Brilliant. I know Richard very well. He's absolutely fantastic behavioural scientist. He's really got a new book guy. out this year. He's got a new book out. I've got it and coming it's on the called, show. if I've got it right, it, remind me what the book's called. It's called... Um, Give me one second. I'll get it up in my oh, calendar. You might get it before me, though. Um, where is he on? Is it next week? No. Is it the week after? No. Is it the week after that? There it is. Oh, no, that's Richard Rangham, the guy that wrote, ah. uh, who is also great. Richard Shotton is coming on. Where the fuck is he? Uh, anyway, he's in, he's in here somewhere. Anyway, there's, I'm very excited for that. I know that you and him have a lot of crossover. Um, do you know the story of how his, uh, what's it called, Astro 10, his company name? No, because I, 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 I my wife was just asking about that, saying, what's this Astro 10 thing? So, so go on, tell me the story. You'll have to ask him for the full the, the full description. However, he found online some uh, company that had used a behavioral insight in a very smart way, and he loved it. He then registered astro10.com and all of his email addresses and went to company's house and the, maybe got the trademark as well and all the rest of it, and then only later realized that it was actually called Astro Teng or something. There was a G on the end. And he he'd typoed the entire thing. He'd actually misspelled this, uh, but preferred the version of it that he came up with, and now he's lumbered with it for the rest of time. Uh, Oprah Winfrey is a similar case, where actually the Old Testament character is called Orpah, not Oprah. And the cleverest one of all, which was a deliberate kind of perversity, Cliff Richard, who will be probably not well known to American listeners, but was a massive kind of uh, pop star and still is indeed in the UK. He's kind of the, I suppose you might sort of vaguely call him the British Johnny Halliday. Okay. But he was originally, I can't remember what his real name is, but it's not Cliff Richard. Okay. He's originally going to be called Cliff Richards. And I think it was his manager who said, no, no, we'll call you Cliff Richard. Why? 
to, because then every time you get interviewed on TV, the interviewer is going to call you Cliff Richards or call you Mr. Richards, and you get a chance to correct him, which means everybody gets to hear your name twice. Wow. <laughs> so that, that was the uh, – um, I mean, the surprising – actually – the, the, a surprising number of names arise through complete. There's another name which also arose through a complete misunderstanding. Do you know the story? Um, do you know the story of Salvador Dali, of why he was, So, Salvador Dali's parents had a child born about nine months before Dali was, and they named him Salvador Dali, and he died only a couple of days after he was born. They then basically almost immediately conceived again and had another child that was born nine months later. And they were adamant that he was a reincarnation of their dead, dead son. Yeah. So they called him Salvador Dali, called him the name of the son that had already gone. Uh, Elvis is interesting because it's widely believed that um, the middle name of Elvis, Aaron Presley, spelled A-R-O-N, okay, is an ignorant uh, typo or, or misspelling either by the parents or by the um, whoever registered the birth. In fact, it's the Welsh spelling of Aaron. And whether Elvis is Welsh or not is open to debate. Um, I mean, I Stop think trying to t- – you, you have a lot of affinity with the Welsh people and country. Stop trying to adopt everybody for your no, 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 slow no, takeover of the Welsh. Dad, his dad was convinced, I think, that they were Welsh. I was convinced that Presley came from the Preseli Hills, where there is, wait for it, a church of St. Elvis. There's only one church of St. Elvis anywhere in the world. It's in Pembrokeshire, not far from the Preseli Hills. His, so his, I his, think what might have been happening is Vernon, was it uh, Elvis's dad? I think I think it was Vernon. Um, Vernon was convinced of the family's Welsh. In the same way, by the way, that Johnny Cash seemed to be absolutely convinced that he was part Native American, even though his ancestry was entirely Scottish. Here's a question for you. Here's a question. As a proud, loosely associated Welshman, how yeah. how has it become that Irish has a cultural impact on the world. You've got Irish areas in New York. People understand St. Patrick's Day. They've, they've generally got themselves a, a cultural foothold. The Scots as well, the bagpipes, they've got the hats, they've got the tartan, they've got everything yeah, as well. Yeah, the Welsh, Welsh in the United States, um, funnily enough, they were fair... Um, Thomas Jefferson, okay, basically Welsh. Um, uh, but the... They seem to assimilate faster. You get Welsh communities in Pennsylvania, mining communities. You get all those places called Bethesda and so forth. You also get those places at Brynmar, which I think is in Connecticut, isn't it? It must be named after the Welsh Brynmar. Um, but so you you do you do get Welsh communities, and obviously Patagonian in uh, uh, in 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 South America. What am I doing? You can't hear what? Okay. Um, uh, but they haven't done a, as good a job of marketing themselves uh, as because um, uh, the Welsh. Um, I think the Welsh, what you might call diaspora, in, in Hillary Clinton, for example, is part Welsh. Uh, <laughs> we'll agree to differ on Elvis. I have no idea, to be absolutely honest, um, uh, about Elvis Presley's bloodline. I'm sure there are people who've researched it in absolutely enormous depth, uh, but. Um, 
Uh, no, you know, whereas Trump would mention his Scottishness, I don't think Hillary Clinton ever mentioned her Welshness. I want to know what been, the branding no, problem is with Welsh. It also would have been of absolutely no electoral value to yes. play on your Welshness. Correct. Uh, for Hillary. Branding um, problem. Uh, uh, and, um, I mean, I've also, you know, and um, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was conscious of his Welshness, interestingly. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, Taliesin is... Um, uh, a Welsh phrase meaning shining brow, and uh, Frank was was pretty conscious of his Welsh ancestry. Uh, were there other? There was also an absolutely fantastic mafioso character in Chicago who was kind of a number two to Al Capone called Murray the Camel Humphreys, whose parents I think came from Carno in Powys or somewhere. Um, but um, so, so, so you have this kind of. You know, I mean, undoubtedly, they're pretty well represented uh, proportionately, um, although Davis is always spelled I-S in the U.S. rather than I-E-S. Um, the, Jefferson Davis, I guess, is actually, I think, you know, he's actually Welsh uh, origin. But it, it, but the, the, the interest in promulgating or promoting it versus the Irish or the Scots um, seems to be much, much lower, I have to say. Maybe maybe you could try and appeal to the Welsh government and speak to them and say if you could do a rebrand, perhaps, for Wales. Yeah. Uh, no, so um, let me, uh, I'll think of a few more. There are um, Actually, the early presidents were disproportionate. Washington, I don't think, was. But I've got a vague idea that Adams and, and quite a few of the early presidents um, were, um, uh, were fairly heavily Welsh. And then... Um, there's also an interesting intimation, which may or may not be true, that Welsh surnames are quite common among African-Americans because of a Welsh Quaker thing where things like underground railroads and so forth tended to be run by Quakers who tended to be Welsh. But I, I, I've read that. How plausible that is, I don't know. It could be entirely fanciful. Um, uh, but um, uh, no, it, it, is, it is kind of interesting um, because... And I, you could, I suppose, you could say, you know, uh, do Anglo-Saxon Americans have a particular sense of uh, identity too? Um, which is an interesting question, is you know, so that the, the Scots and the Irish, and there's a little, you know, you think you're, you're absolutely right that the small country syndrome, where people tend to be slightly more proud of ancestry from a less populous country. Um, but again, I suppose you know German Americans have never, you know, I mean, the population of the U.S. is probably more German by ancestry than it is Brit British. Not quite. Um, an interesting question. Um, uh, it, possibly more than English, but if you include the whole of the British Isles, no. Um, but uh, you you get the odd you get the odd thing in Milwaukee, places like that, just as you get the Swedish thing in. In Minnesota, I would love to hear a Welsh American blended accent. That would be, that would be one hell of a cacophony coming out. Yeah, I mean, what one theory I did here is that the Welsh, being fairly sort of easygoing, um, uh, you know, would within one generation basically completely blend in. Oh, they just allow themselves to, to dilute down into the local culture. Just dilute down. There's a very funny comedian who I think you'll enjoy called Andrew. Is it Schultz? Have you come across him? He, yeah, he's been on the show. Oh, he's been on the show? Yeah. I, I thought what was absolutely hysterical is I was watching him on YouTube doing a show in Hawaii, taking the piss out of people who moved to Hawaii, because he said his, his mother's Scottish, okay, was born in Scotland, 
and she's lived in New York for almost all her adult life. But she is still completely Scottish in her speech and her behavior and mannerisms. She said, you don't get my mother going, fuck you, <laughs> etc." right? She said, but people move to Hawaii, and three weeks later, they're all there going, aloha, and using Hawaiian phrases. <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of calling out bullshit. Calling everyone re- a howly. That's what they call the yeah. people that are from out of town. Look, Rory, let's yeah. bring this one home. I always well, love speaking fantastic. to you, mate. Um, I'm going to be back in London at some point this year, so I'll definitely give love you a Love to catch up. You're absolutely splendid. Yeah. Thank you, mate. Catch you later on. All the best. I mean, how can you not absolutely love that man? Uh, Every single time that I bring him on the show, he reminds me just how phenomenal his insights are. Don't forget, you can get the Whoop 4.0 for free and get your first month for free at join.whoop.com slash Modern Wisdom, you can get 10% discount on your first month of therapy from BetterHelp at betterhelp.com slash modernwisdom. And you can get 10 free travel packs, a year's supply of vitamin D, and a 90-day money-back guarantee from athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom. I'll see you next time.